Welcome to Unapologetically Us, the podcast where immigrants and their children celebrate our unique heritage, consider what it means to live in between cultures, and contemplate what it means to be American. I am your host, Dr. B. Thank you all for joining us again on our fifth episode. I am so glad to have a doctor and a soon-to-be doctor in the house. So welcome, Dr. Akola, and soon-to-be Dr. Busari. <laughs> Today, we are talking about mental health and living in between. Now, it's probably a topic that doesn't seem to resonate at first, but there's so much to talk about. The impact of cultural adjustments on mental health, the cultural and social expectations, and the tensions that exist between the two cultures, which hold different values, and how we, especially as people who are groomed here in the West, may manage our personal psychological well-being if it doesn't seem to be a priority in our home culture. And we'll talk a little bit more in detail about what that means. So there's a lot to discuss in a short period of time, but let's dive in. First, I'd love to hear about your personal experiences growing up. Now, Bona, I've known you since I was seven years old, so we'll get to you. But I want to start with Z. Z, were you born here or in Nigeria? I was born here in Washington, D.C. Okay, and have you been to Nigeria? And if so, how many times? I have. So within my family, our custom is if you're born outside of Nigeria, you have to spend some time back home going to school. So my sometime back on going to school was elementary school for just a few years. And I had that experience and have not been back since. So oh. it is time for me to circle back, circle my wagon, wow. get back home, see what's going on. But I'm really grateful that within some of my earlier formative years that I got a chance to do things like go back home to the village, meet great great grandma, find out where father's people are from engage with him and his his culture different from my mom's and just kind of connected that way how old were you then when you left six seven so how old were you when you returned to the u.s i mean when you returned to nigeria and then came back to the u.s came back when i was eight okay so you lived there for about a year or two about three about three years Mm -hmm. wow and do you have any memories from from being there i mean besides like meeting your parents like so many going to school, walking to school. I think my memory is a little bit more dramatic than it should be <laughs> because it includes like long walks through dusty roads. <laughs> I think we pretty much had a driver, <laughs> had a tutor after school. Right, I remember, right. you know, going to Washington, which is where my maternal grandmother, great-grandmother is, is from and meeting her and distant cousins. I'm going to Paduna where my father's from, meeting meeting him. So just getting connected to, to family and history and culture was really important. Did you feel accepted? Or, I mean, not that they would reject, but when I went to Nigeria with my daughter, who at the time was two, my Uber driver was saying that she was going to get made fun of because of her accent. I just want to say my baby was a sweetheart before she went to Nigeria. When she came back, it was not the case anymore. So she was hissing all the time and grouchy. And so um, I'm wondering if you recall any, did they receive you as their own or was there a sense of, oh, Americana, like, you know, you're not from here really? I remember in school, there was a little bit of a stint with me wearing American clothes versus Mm -hmm. the uniforms. And nobody would touch me because of who my father was. But I remember feeling accepted but but kind of washed like mm. okay accepted but I had a bit of an accent 
and I came back home pissing as well. Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> you said me being. Pursuing a trip here. I'm still hissing. <laughs> that Niger attitude, it just, it just gets into you. Okay, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. And then, yeah. Bono, um, now I always forget, you were born in Nigeria though, right? Absolutely not. I'm actually the first member of my family born here. So you were born here too? My immediate elder brother and sister were born in Nigeria. Mm. Okay. When my mom moved here for a master's program, she was pregnant with me without knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was born here. I was the only member of my family born in the state. And how about you? How often do you go back to Nigeria? So I've been back a few times. I went when I was seven for the first time. And then after that, I didn't go back until I was about 20. And since then, I've been since I was 20, I've been back maybe three times. The last time was in 2016, where I just decided I wanted to go for vacation, which a lot of people didn't understand. When I wanted to really explore and do all the same kinds of tourism that I might do in South America or in Europe. I did all those types of things. So I just yeah. made a list of things that I wanted to do, all the museums and art galleries and historical sites that I wanted to visit. Sent the, the list to my friends that maybe came here for school and went back. So I had people sent the list to them and had everybody choose what they wanted to do with me and really got to explore Lagos. Yeah, I remember watching your videos or your videos and your posts. And since then, I've been inspired to go. I wanted to go to Badagri. So when I went to Nigeria yeah. recently, that was part of my hope. But with a child, I just didn't want to risk some things. But I just remember thinking, wow, there's so much history there that I wish Absolutely. I could have explored the first time I had gone. So it seems like all of us then are second gen. Yeah. According to the literature, because we were born here. And although Z, you had, I'm sorry, Zanab. <laughs> uh, I know Z through Wana when they went to church. So I've known you guys for a while, you ladies for a while. You had some formative experiences while in Nigeria. So I'm not sure how the literature would categorize that, but most of your developmental experience has been here in the West, especially during your teenage years. So that's pretty impactful. So I'm curious, did either of you have ever have moments where you felt like you were different from others while in the United States? They just had a moment where you're just like, okay, I'm not just full blown American. Absolutely. I still feel that way till now. I don't think there's been a moment. I think there's been a lifetime of feeling not American enough, but also not Nigerian enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. I think one of my favorite things to say is like, I'm definitely not Nigerian enough for the Nigerian club because it's a tight knit crew. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have some, like I've done a bid in Nigerian schooling, but not long enough. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. I, I empathize with oftentimes that I wonder if, if I was to talk to one of my half white, half black friends, if mm. that, if we would resonate with each other, yeah, because yeah. it's really about cultural nuance and yeah. and differences that really impacts yeah. how people receive you. It's so true. Well stated. Can you all like tell me more about your credentials? Now I'm I'm calling this Doctor Okola and there's soon to be Doctor um, Busari, but let, let our audience know a little bit more about your academic background and what inspired you to take this path. Dr. Z has a longer resume, so I'm going to let her go ahead and (laughs) view up all her accomplishments. (laughs) Well, thank you, Fujin Dr. Bono. So I have my master's in marriage and family therapy, and I'm also a licensed clinician in that same line. And then I have my doctorate in higher ed admin and policy from GW. I'll start with my master's. That's what led me into education. I got my degree from Syracuse University. 
I picked up whoop, whoop, go orange. <laughs> <laughs> My that was a was a fruit for it. Okay. Um, I loved it and I still like oranges. So I, I, I pursued that degree because of my background. What brought me into therapy and mental health was my experiences in Black and African churches, mm. witnessing mental health firsthand and witnessing the lack of resources surrounding it. Wow. I wanted to have a voice and have the skill sets to address what I was seeing that I thought the church just wasn't built to address. And so I went and pursued my master's in marriage and family therapy. And the year that I happened to be at Syracuse from 2008 to 2010, those years, they had the highest levels of illiteracy amongst Black youth in the country. When it finally came time for my practicum, which is where you actually get to do therapy, you've done all your kind of, most of your coursework, but you get to do therapy and collect hours with clients. I had a cohort of eight, all seven of my cohort members decided to go to an inpatient facility where they were able to see folks regularly, all sorts of full, all age rings and, and diverse backgrounds. And I decided to go and do my practicum within the high school, middle school, and elementary school within the inner city of Syracuse. And I became kind of the standalone Black occupational therapist within those two years. My master's thesis during that time focused on something known as depression NOS within children between the ages of, of 9 and 13. And all depression NOS is not otherwise specified. It's when you're diagnosed with depression, but you don't have a family background or, or any sort of clinical proclivities that would lead us to believe that this would be your disposition. But instead, what you're dealing with is some contextual factors that then lead you into early states of depression, um, early onset of anxiety, bipolarism, so on and so forth. And this came from working directly with children as early as eight that had never had imaginary friends. When I asked them what they wanted to do in the future, they had no scheme or no outlandish, you know, child-filled wonderment around, I want to be a firefighter. I want to do this. It was just, I don't know. When I had one child like that, I was concerned. When I had two, I was worried. By the time I realized that I had worked with a team of children, some of the youngest six that were just like, I don't know. I realized that contextually two things were happening, that they were living in poverty and our educational system was failing them tremendously. Mm. And so my mind was also deciding if I could do therapy full-time and exclusively. And I found that that was not what I wanted to do exclusively, that I mm -hmm. thought it had to be bridged with some type of resource tool, some type of bridge to education. And so when I finished Syracuse, I went on and my first job after my clinical training was actually working as admissions counselor at University of Maryland. Oh. So I did recruitment for them. I traveled and basically was a brand ambassador for the university. And my most interesting work was working directly with students and parents around their pathways to and through college. That led me into second career as an academic advisor and director, working with students and then building curriculum around how to work with students, and then getting my doctorate in higher ed. Now on this side of the work that I'm doing, my passion is around kind of making the bridges between mental health resources on higher ed campuses and within institutions, and also making the argument around making those services available to students, particularly from low-income backgrounds, minoritized populations, is a key factor to their success 
in terms of campus cultural awareness and resources, and a greater factor, a greater indicator of their success than maybe their ability. So if wow. you can't get folks to feel free to dream or feel safe or mm-hmm. see possibilities, Imagine, yeah. whether they're talented or not, is not doesn't get to come into the forefront of their success. Wow, Dr. Z. I'm like, yes, I'm just so much insight there. And I appreciate how your mind was working to get you to have a career that is doing something meaningful and that's connected and thoughtful. It's just it's all, the word that comes to me is just it seemed like you took a lot of thought, put a lot of thought into how to impact people's lives and connect to our youth and people who have been minoritized and it's impacting them, all the things that I just like, wow, wow. Bono, tell us about you, yeah. your journey. My journey has been interesting. And, I, and what I love about this conversation and the amazing people that are a part of it is that you guys have also been a part of my journey. I remember talking to Dr. Z around the time that she first started her doctoral program about how I was also interested in a doctorate, but I didn't really know what path I was taking. I, we talked about so many things, okay, PhD versus side versus DMFT, like just everything and um, figuring out what I wanted to do. So I kind of took a few years to decide what my path would be and to really look into programs, understand what each degree really, like what the path that each degree opened up for people. And at the end of the day, I decided that clinical mental health counseling and becoming an LCPC, which is a licensed clinical professional counselor, was going to be the best path for me and kind of where my goals led. So I applied to various programs and you guys know all the programs because you were a big part of my essay writing journey. Um, just reading the essays and giving me feedback. I and mean, eventually I chose Northwestern University for my master's program. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm in a master's program in clinical mental health counseling at Northwestern. Right. And really what led me there, I have my bachelor's in psychology. And what led me down this path were a few things. I feel like there are a lot of places that my identity intersects. I do consider myself a feminist and I believe that women should be advocated for. And the mental health of women, I mean, and just in everyday roles that they carry, right? Mother, wife, um, professional, anything that women are doing, there's a heavy burden to be um no matter, even if you're not a mother, there's a heavy burden to be a mother. <laughs> like you notice, you might be in the office and you see women planning all of the parties or mm. planning the potlucks or carrying burdens that men don't really have to think about. And also just the burden of being a woman and feeling victimized in a, in a, lot, of, in a lot of ways as quote unquote, the weaker sex, right? And not having always the strength to protect yourself and all those kinds of things that might go on in your head and the mental toll that those take. So there's that part. And then there's also being a Black woman, right? And what that means and the misogyny and racism that intersect there. Understanding how that's a heavier burden to carry for Black women than really any other gender or race. Mm. And then being an American-born Black woman from another culture. There's another layer. And talking to my friends, talking to people that are like me. You know, I mentioned earlier not feeling American enough but also not Nigerian enough. But I have found that there is a second gen culture of its Mm. own where I do feel at home, you know. But in talking to people from that culture, especially women, many of us have married Nigerian men that were born and raised in Nigeria. Many of us have navigated Nigerian culture in, in ways that 
you know, were detrimental to our mental health and that were very much put yourself, you know, very much taught us to put ourselves on the back burner mm. for everything and every, everyone else. And that does take a mental toll on people. So all of these things, thinking about all of these things, mulling over all of these things, experiencing and living through all of these things kind of drew me to mental health counseling. And so now I'm in the program at Northwestern pursuing that degree. And the goal really is to speak, to teach and to practice. So mm. I, I'd like to speak, to spread awareness. I think that especially from what I've seen of Nigerian culture and the people that I've spoken to, and I think it's being destigmatized to an extent, but counseling and therapy is just, people think that if you say I'm in therapy, that must mean you're admitting to being crazy. And that's or, just not the truth. Or to Z's point, probably, I, I imagine Z kind of observed this too, in the church, it's like, you're not trusting God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've heard that many a times that, oh, you know, you don't trust God. And, and I say this to people all the time, when you have a broken leg, you don't hesitate to go to the doctor, but when you have a broken heart, you have to figure mm-hmm. out how to mend it on your own mm-hmm. without the help of a professional. And it just doesn't add up. So I really want to speak to people that are coming from the same places that I come yeah. from, the various lanes that I come from about mental health counseling and destigmatizing it. And so that's yeah. what I want to speak about. And I want to teach because I just really have a passion for it. Um, I'd love to get my doctorate in counseling, supervision and education so that I can teach counselors and supervise counselors and help groom other counselors into yeah, the field yeah. and then of course I want to practice because you know people really do need a safe space to talk and to be able to build muscles that they can use in the outside world a safe space to really unburden themselves to talk and to find the tools they need um, to be able to navigate all, all of the things that life throws at all of us so yeah that's really where my heart is that's what I'm studying toward and that's that's the goal yeah, this conversation could not have happened without both of you. Because I remember I was like, no, both of you need to be here. It just totally makes sense. Um, in this moment, I'm just feeling very touched by just how, again, how much self-reflection and observation and your experience, all, both of, or maybe all of us, our positionalities have sort of led us to make meaning out of it, I guess, or to to use our positionality to create something that can help other people. So I guess in this moment, I'm feeling touched about that. And then also we are definitely evidence of what the Pew Research data show is that second gen, specifically Nigerians, and I'm sure this probably um, could apply to some other Africans, we represent, we have a lot of degrees, (laughs) we do really well. And so, this room alone, there's a this is them. (laughs) And then something else that came to my mind was, the African in me, and I don't know if Z feels this, but the African in me must call you soon to be Dr. So, you know, so and so, like. Amen. So and we, most feminist. Amen. Yeah, exactly. We have to affirm it. So it's just funny. And, I, and that's going to come up too. There's so much you said, Bono, that we're going to talk about. So another question I had is, can either of you share any moments of internal conflict you had, you know, growing up in a Nigerian home? attending American schools, maybe if you attended a, a Black church or American church or a Nigerian church, all those tensions. Can you share any moment where you had an internal conflict that you kind of felt may have caused you some kind of psychological distress? I'm sure I can go. Okay, Dr. Z, did you want to go no, first? No, please go ahead. Okay, I'll keep it brief because I'm actually really interested in what you have to say about this. Yeah. For me, I want to say this very carefully, but as I sit now where I am in terms of my journey, this is my truth. So I want to say it honestly as well. But growing up in the Nigerian church and churches that I went to was psychologically damaging. 
for a few reasons. From what I've seen of Nigerian Christianity, people that are in, in, in positions of power in religion are treated almost like deities when they're actually people. And when you give people a pedestal, one, they will definitely fall off of it. And two, they will use it to exert power over other people in ways that they might not have imagined they would at the beginning of their journey. And so in my experience growing up in Nigerian churches, I have felt extremely small. Like I wouldn't, not, 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 and not only that I was not good enough, but I would never be good enough. There was nothing I could do that would make me seen, heard, appreciated, celebrated. And I actually had to leave church altogether to be able to find myself, find strength within myself and in my relationship with God, and then go back to church with that assurance and be able to serve and know that, okay, you know what I'm bringing to the table and what I'm doing for God is for God, not to please people, not to serve people, not to treat people like they're more important than I am in God's eyes. You know, just a few, a little, uh, I don't, uh, it's really hard for me to explain and somebody else on the table might be able to articulate it better. But this idea that to God, this person is more important than me. And therefore to me, this person has to be more important than me and in some ways more important than God. And I think it's really dangerous. I think it's really damaging. And I think it's really, it can be toxic. I know we throw this word around like, like hotcakes, like you get a toxic, you get a toxic, everybody gets a toxic, but to me, it did feel like there was toxicity. And I felt like that toxicity spread throughout my thinking and a lot of my actions. I think one of the things I observed, but before I do that, I want to take time to, to remind us here in this conversation and also our listeners that we have to be careful of generalizing. We're talking about our own personal experiences, which might resonate with more people than not. But I also want to make room for the fact that not all Nigerian churches and not all Nigerian people are a certain way. But in my observation, there is this value and respect for hierarchy in general within the culture. So then when you add a deity like God on top of that and God put you there, it's like you ain't nothing. You, you are literally at the, the bottom of the totem pole because God made me this leader or put me in this position. And I think it's easier to have this abuse of power in that kind of context. Not that it doesn't happen in a, you know, a, a church that's not Nigerian. But I, I think one of the reasons it does happen when it does happen in Nigerian churches is because of how we value hierarchy and titles and labels and all mm, that other stuff. Absolutely. Z, I'd like to hear from you about any kind of internal conflict you may have had that caused psychological distress. <laughs> yeah. So... Part of the process of becoming a therapist is receiving your own therapy. And the way I like to describe it visually for some people, it's it's the process of what I call unpacking your own addict. So if you live in a house before, there's always an addict. Sometimes it's ashy. There's like a pull down ladder. There's always a box in the corner that you're like, I don't want to throw it away. But it's like weighing on the on the rooftop. Packing. So I got to figure out what's in that box. And so for me, when I dusted off the box, I found a lot of a need for me to detox from spiritual superstition that's almost ingrained in how Nigerian Christian. (laughs) So I think Bona described it well, like an imbalanced or unhealthy fear of an authority outside of God, Mm -hmm. simply based on folks' real or imagined anointing or title 
or authority that you've placed over your life. The unlearning for me was about just how vast and how big God really is. And once I grappled with that, I think if you haven't gone through an existential crisis, like, hold on. (laughs) If you're living life and you're not asking questions, perhaps why, but if you have questions about that, God is, the way I've experienced God is that he will introduce himself to you in like other ways that don't fit into your schema and don't inform and don't revalidate your understanding of what it means to be spiritual or connected. And it flies in the face of everything that you've learned. So that was some of my unlearning and that came through through the folks I got a chance to, to serve and work with in therapy through the questions I myself could not answer when I was going through my own supervision and therapy as a budding and growing, still growing therapist and getting comfortable with that kind of disassociation because in the church, in the African church, in the African culture, unanswered questions are not a thing. Like there's always an answer. Yeah. We reaffirm what we want and that's what it is. Mm. You have a question that can't be answered, then it's a question you shouldn't be asking. So move on to the thing that you know. And that is just not, that's just not accurate in other areas of life. Right. And I have to get malleable and flexible with that. And it made more room for God to show up in my practice, for me to show up more as myself. Mm-hmm. Things that you have to be able to do, particularly as a clinician, is to understand who you are in the room and what you bring in the room. But if mm-hmm. you're carrying all these like muted, unlabeled boxes in your attic that you refuse to dust off, you can get triggered and not know that you're reacting to a client in a triggered state. Mm. And all triggers really are, are truths that are less denied. Mm. So maybe I haven't dealt with my own fears or anxiety around a particular topic, and I'm here dealing with this brave soul in the room that's daring to ask the same questions that I myself have not allowed myself to ask myself, let alone get answered. I'm not triggered. I'm now in a trigger state. I'm now asking them to do what I've done to cope with it. If what I've done is shut it down and put it under a carpet, then it might come out as, you know, maybe you're not focusing on the right thing. Right. Perhaps you should focus on what makes you feel good because da, 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 and I'll, I'll make it sound pretty and justify it. And all I'm really doing is asking them to please don't bring that up right now. Because number one, I don't know. Number two, I have the same question. Number three, versus once you finally get a chance to be honest with yourself that you know, you're a therapist, not a psychic, not a prophet, not a mind reader, then you can do something more comfortable and more honest and more true in the space, which is say, that's curious. As an expert on your life, how are you managing that? Or how are you making space for that? So the same types of compassion that I've had to learn in the detoxing Mm -hmm. process, Mm -hmm. I had to afford myself compassions that weren't, number one, weren't afforded to me. I didn't know how to give to myself. I didn't think I deserved at the time. And then I'm able to give that back to clients. Wow. So you both have sort of spoken to this idea of being ourselves, which doesn't seem to fit within at least our shared experience of being Nigerian. Like, who are you? You know, like, especially when you're a woman and you're a child, it's like you never get to grow up. You don't really get to express how you feel. Like, what's that? Or if you do, you're being rude. And a friend of mine who is Nigerian, she opened up to me about the psychological distress she's felt because of the expectations that were put on her as a wife to a Nigerian man. And so she felt like 
you know, this pull to obey, to manage his ego. And that's some, some of the patriarchy that doesn't just exist in Nigeria, but it just seems stronger. <laughs> but she also felt, she felt like she couldn't express herself. Like she couldn't say, hey, I have a need. Or, hey, I'm sad. Or I have questions. It's like, you don't get to feel that if it's going to disrupt the way another person feels. And then one thing she would say, she, she would always say, she didn't feel like Nigerians were compassionate. Now, mind you, I think she's hurting because <laughs> that is a over that is a sweeping generalization. But you know, to the point you raised, Z, like she felt like she didn't receive compassion, and she needed compassion. She needed someone to to hear her, and it's like she couldn't be heard. And I struggle with it. Just seems normal within at least the people I know of the elders. I should say I know because not all of the Nigerian women I know think this way, but the Niger- mm-hmm. among some Nigerian older women, it's like. You don't get to talk or you just ignore how, how you're feeling or you don't think too much about how you're feeling. You don't have mm-hmm. to express yourself. There's like this, you know, you, you have a phony face or something. They don't call it phony face. Mm-hmm. I forget what they call it, but there's a word for like wearing this mask. So, sorry, Z, did you want to say something? <laughs> no, I'm laughing because what my aunt would call it is my friend, show your teeth. I mean, yeah. If it hurts, smile. I don't, yeah. I don't know what. Show your teeth. And, and Tayo, to your point, I think one illustration that might help our listeners and ourselves kind of contextualize this is as first-gen, second-gen Nigerian, we are not only Nigerian in a society that's like our family. Mm. Our families come from collectivist cultures. So right. if I speak, I speak on behalf. Right. You know, in an individual, individualistic society that phases out our elders so right. that I'm at the front, at a certain stage in my development. That is not our cultural experience. It doesn't even resonate with us because that's not what we're taught. But emotionally, when I'm emoting and I feel something, I remember, I I admire my mother for many reasons, but the strength that I see in her is her ability to, something hits her and it rolls off. Mm -hmm. It's me. I feel the impact. I'm looking at the print. Did it leave (laughs) Exactly. And they were like, no, 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 unless you died, then you should keep going. Yes, you should know yes. asking questions about where it came from. Move. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, why are you trying to dig into this thing? Why are you trying to dig into this thing? Yeah. But I'm like, well, I need to know who, where, where it came from. What did I do yeah. to attract it? Yeah. Did I, yeah. like, like is, there, is there something that I could have done? And for the sake of the tribe, for the sake of the culture, for the sake of your family, you keep it moving because it's not just about your experience and i think that there are some gems there's some there's some yes, in both yes. ways of existing uh, yeah absolutely i've learned like there's there, there's a balance what we bring into it is that self-awareness is important so i need yeah. to know when i'm throwing the rock and what i do when i react when the rock is thrown mm-hmm. and that yes as a part of the collective i am valid in having my own separate thought the other part of our culture is that we tend to be a mess Meaning, finally, if Bonner is my sister and she's having a bad day, well, then we, we're having a bad day. Right. Um, right. So we take on and assume and wear like cloak other people's emotions and mental states. Whereas mm-hmm. in individualistic societies, if I'm good, I'm good. If mm-hmm. you pay a bill, that's you. I, I can't even right. imagine that coming into play. Okay. Dr. Z, so much. Okay, there's so much, so much. And again, still so little time. So I was going to talk about this idea of resilience, which is what you, you touched on already, right? You know, do you guys know this song? It was a Fuji song. V-I-H-A-P-P-Y. You guys know the song? Yeah, yeah, I do. We are happy people, right? And so that is sort of like the mark of 
Nigerians, and I think Black people everywhere, is that we are these happy people because we don't let things get to us. But I think at times it translates into not being distracted by feelings and focusing on, on the future. Whereas contemporary psychology says, sit with your feelings, engage yeah. them. So are we saying that, you know, there's a both and, or when should we sit with our feelings? And when do we take the Nigerian approach of, I'm not going to let this hold me down, keep on going? Like, I, how, I, how do, do, I do believe that there's an and. I think that you should sit with your feelings so that when you do move forward, you're able to move forward with clarity. You're able to move forward healed. I mean, even when you think of some of the Nigerian catchphrases, like Igobeta, we move, right? Yeah, yeah. I beg, I beg, I beg. All these things that mean I'm not letting anything get to me. But then you now look at the society in Nigeria and the country and it's crumbling around everyone because <laughs> nobody took time to sit with the issues and to yeah. fix them, right? Yeah. And so this is what we see. I believe that there is a, a, a huge importance in the end. Yes, you sit with those feelings. But then you also take that resilience that you get from your culture and then you move forward, having learned the lessons that you learned from sitting with those feelings and bring those in and you and you teach your children those lessons that you learned. And then you perpetuate different things, a different type of self-awareness that you might have had to learn in the trenches on your own. You know what I mean? Without the support of that community that, that Z speaks about. But I think it is important. You, I think that you have to move forward. Right. You can't sit with your feelings to the extent that it limits your growth, but you also can't ignore your feelings to the right. extent that it limits your growth, right? right? Because both of them are important. And that's well said. And, and when we ignore our feelings, that's when we are, I think as Dr. Z taught us, we're triggered, we become triggered because we, we're denying mm-hmm. a truth. And then sometimes some of our interactions among our brothers and sisters is coming from a triggered place, but they don't realize it. So I think yeah, that absolutely. can make things difficult. Our brothers, our sisters, our husbands. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It can make me so cool. And then as Z, as you were talking, you were talking about enmeshment. I recently learned about codependency and, I, and I'm beginning to wonder, is the culture, do you think the culture sort of breeds codependency? The sense of like, if your mom is not happy with the wedding cake that you picked, then you're not happy. They, you know, like there's no freedom in your own, having your own separate thoughts and feelings. It's like all of your thoughts and your, your experience and your opinions have implications for other people. You have to consider all these other people before you make decisions. I don't know that maybe that's just my experience, but I'm wondering if what you know about that, if you know anything about the role that codependency plays within the culture, or the way that culture sort of plays into how it maybe cultivates codependency and maybe narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting is that codependency is actually a trauma response to abandonment. Enmeshment, however, is not separate from abandonment. <laughs> Enmeshment is just the covering that maybe an abandoned unit puts around its unit to protect itself. So we are self-sufficient and we are one. And we are one sometimes to the fault of not letting other help in. So you'll find within even like an extended family system, you know, siblings go over your cousin's house, don't tell them my business. What is in the house is in the house. That's the type of enmeshment and privacy that can show up in our cultures. We're not the only culture that does this. I think of other other cultures that have this kind of theme. What's going to be important, though, for both understanding codependency is you have to be aware of how these things are falling on you and how this informs how you interact and what you then expect from other relationships. And so if you're constantly seeking, if you've been taught to only feel okay once validated, then you might be prone to codependence. And this shows up in romantic relationships as it's easier to spot in more romantic relationships than friendships. Mm-hmm. Because what that looks like now is 
if your partner doesn't like your outfit or if your partner seems upset one day, you can internalize it like, what did I do? And what can I do to change this person's attitude? When in reality, if you become aware of self, your compassion towards yourself and others will be that you don't have control over that anyway. Mm -hmm. All you can control is is here. Mm -hmm. So you can be a support to your partner. You can be loving and close with them. You can even cry with them when they're going through a loss. But it is then not your work to change that. Right. It's not your work. And it's not your assumed responsibility that you are the source of that. Because right. even if you trigger something, you're nobody's source. It's right. what's going on within them. It's what you triggered within them. Right. Um, right. And so some of these conversations are some of the conversations that we've kind of disassociated ourselves with just because we tend to not have these intimate conversations about how our culture and how our nuances impact our individual expressions within our personality and within our mm -hmm. relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's, I'm sure there's, I don't know what research is out there, but it needs to be studied. Absolutely. You brought this up too. And this is something else I think about is the way we orient towards relationships and not just romantic, but in my experience, what does intimacy look like? Even in friendships is like, there's this practice of, don't tell your people about the good things that are going on in your life. Mm -hmm. Other cultures mm -hmm. believe in what is called the evil eye. I don't know what they call it in mm -hmm. among Yoruba people or in other Nigerian cultures, but there's this belief that like evil is waiting to make you unhappy. So don't share your happiness. Don't tell your friends about all the good things. You can't even trust your family members, but you got to put, you know, show your teeth at the same time. I have struggled with that because I, even though I know there's a wisdom, there's a native wisdom there. But there's also like, well, how are you supposed to have intimate relationships, like friendships? And then I don't know if that's an, an American thing of me to expect. So I'm curious about your thoughts, both of you. Like, what are your thoughts about that? I can share a little anecdote. I remember when I was, again, going through my training, my master's program, the fascinating differential that I found amongst myself and my colleagues were to get close to me, they would share these deeply parts of their lives. And I'd be listening like, did you just tell me, why, why would you ever share that out loud? And some of them, I, like, I would even pull aside, like, come, please, don't, I'm not going to tell your business. I'm not. But please, like, be careful who you, and that was me talking from my locus of control, my purview, my schema. Like, before I share with you my dreams, my aspirations, let alone my deepest, darkest secret, I have to be close to you. And mm -hmm. some of the cultures, it's, an initiation of intimacy is being as vulnerable as possible and mm. seeing if you match me. And if you don't, hey, I, mm. like I walk away, mm -hmm. but there's like a sense of ownership around that story. I think there, that there has to be a balance between the two. And I still think that that's something that I still negotiate within myself because I think I'm naturally a pretty private person. So if it's not in my relating behavior to like center a personal story about, about myself and I would not be surprised if I did some more digging and found like oh yeah I know that that's a absolutely learned behavior yeah but I I see value in, in having some of that wisdom because I I do believe that not everything is for everybody of course I do believe that you cannot have sclerosis line I do believe that we live in a social media mm -hmm. era that tells you that you should be pre-announcing everything and mm -hmm. sometimes that's good and sometimes that is not to your advantage right but, but deciding whether or not somebody is trustworthy enough and whether or not you can read 
if somebody is a safe space requires you to do some of your own personal digging to figure out how safe of a space you are for yourself. Yeah. Let me clarify a bit because there was a time a lot of my American friends thought I was too private and similar to you. I'm like, I don't have to tell you all the details. Is that something? But over time, I guess I I was like, okay, so you want to know what's new? Okay. I'm thinking about getting a house. But something like that, some of my Nigerian friends was like, you don't tell people that. You buy the house. And oh yeah, by by the way, I bought the house. And so I did that. And then some of my American friends were like, how could you do that and not tell me? (laughs) And so that's sort of what I meant. Of course, regardless, you need to make sure that you can trust people with your, you know, before you share any personal information, you got to make sure you can trust them. But there's a difference between the way it seems and I'm going to say Africans in general, because I remember a friend of mine who's white American brought this up to me. She's like, I've noticed among some of the African people who attend our church, they won't even tell you they're pregnant. You just one day get a, a picture like, oh, we've welcomed our kid. And you're like, I didn't know you were pregnant. <laughs> and so they felt like it was hard to have that close, intimate relationship because of the way they do things. And I'm in the middle and I'm like, I get the privacy. I also kind of see the the the, the beauty in being able to share with someone about what's happening in my life, if I'm sad, if I'm happy or not. Yeah. So both of you guys know that I married somebody that grew up in Nigeria until he was 30 and moved to the state. So this is a very Nigerian man, a very specifically Yoruba man. And so there are times when he'll tell me, oh, no, you know, don't tell, okay, don't tell your sister about, about this when, you know what I mean? Not because of anything. I'm sure she'll be very happy for you, but you know, you just have to be careful. Yeah. And for me, even like, so we're talking about, okay, if we're talking about relationships, for me, there's no one closer that can get closer than my sister. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very interesting for me that even that close, he's just like, I haven't even told my family. I haven't told my brother this. I haven't told my best friend this. I haven't told my sister. And for me, so, you know, when we take away, okay, obviously we don't want to just tell everybody our business. There is this superstition that if you tell your good news, if you tell your joy, that it will be taken away from you or people won't be happy for you. So when then when people are not happy for you, they'll take your name to the village and try yeah. to ruin your um, your good fortune. And that's that's hard for me to navigate as well. Right. Because while I do understand the privacy when it comes to people that are obviously outside of the circle of trust and outside mm-hmm. outside of my close sphere of influence, the people that have influence over me and that I have influence over. I get not sharing it with them, but um, culturally what I've seen is that even people that are close to you, you shouldn't be intimate with. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. And so that's weird for me. So even with my husband, who I believe is supposed to be my most in- intimate partner, there's some things that I'm like, you know, you should have told me that a week ago. Do you realize that that happened? You should, <laughs> that, that should have been the first thing you told me when you saw me. Um, so he's getting used to that as well. So that happy medium place, we're both trying to find it, like find that equilibrium yeah. where okay, I will share with you everything. And of course you can share with your family, everything, your, the, the nuclear family that you're coming from, you can share everything with them. And I think we both agree that there are some things that you don't share with certain people, but that intimacy is something that, you know, if I, if I want to be candid was a struggle at the beginning of my marriage, because I felt like I was shut out of a lot of the things in his life because he has lived very privately mm. for so long. So there was a sharp learning curve for him to kind of learn the kind of intimacy that I expected. 
Um, and there's also a sharp learning curve for him to learn the kind of intimacy that I wanted to have with my close friends and my, and my family. Mm. So negotiating that, going to the table and negotiating that intimacy has been very interesting in telling him, no, no, I would like to share this with the people that I love and the people yeah. that love me. And I also, because I love you, I would like for you to share certain things with me. Right. And he's learning now, like when he has a win at work, he'll shoot me a text. He'll be like, guess what? A picture was up on this leaderboard or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we're learning that intimacy. And, you know, we spend time really talking to each other and talking about everything and really delving into the depth of our days, of our week, of the thoughts that we, we've been thinking. But that intimacy is hard to navigate or the lack thereof, because I crave it personally. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that comes from a number of things from my past, but I crave being close to the people that I influence and that the people, the people that have influence over me. So it's really been an interesting negotiation. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it also has to do with not being, acting out in intimacy sort of requires vulnerability and mm-hmm. vulnerability might require getting in touch with your feelings and engaging with something. So I wonder how much of the secrecy and the privacy has to do with that. Like not, not necessarily within your situation, but in general, in terms of not really talking about how you feel or what's going on within you, because it's still that idea of moving forward. Um, I have to say that I do think that it, even in my situation, I can tell you from experience, it has everything to do with that. Mm-hmm. Even talking to my husband's mother, what she'll say is my children, none of my children will talk. They can't talk long. Yeah. They can't. That's what she'll say because, you know, she doesn't speak too much English, but what she means is that my children can't sit in a conversation and delve into their feelings yeah. and suss out what's wrong with us yeah. and, and try to, like, that. that's just not something yeah. my, any of my children do. My yeah. husband will say, the language he uses is, I'm not really a romantic person, but, but the romance that I've been asking of him is for that intimacy. So it has everything to do with that. Yeah, yeah and that kind of communication and that kind of openness and vulnerability that you spoke about. I, th- I think that it really has everything to do with it. So, yeah, I, I think that is a huge part of it. And honestly, I have felt so awkward in the company of people who were maybe born in Nigeria and came here when they were teens or people who are a little more Niger. I, I mean, I feel awkward anyway, but I am a deep thinker and I take things deep really quickly. And so I, when I try to strike conversations with people, they're like, if it's not about Arsenal and Man, man you or mm-hmm. it's like, why are you talking? Like, unless you're talking about how to make the best FO or what you like about your good. And I'm mm-hmm. like, or school. Or school. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let's talk about feelings and mm-hmm. what we think. I don't know. I just have all these What's things I want to talk about. Fear. What is eh? the thing? Fear. About? I find that. <laughs> and it's like, okay. I have found it hard to connect at times. Because probably to your, what you raised, Bono, in terms of not talking too deeply and kind of keeping everything surface level. In some ways, like we said, there's a, there's a place for that. But then there's this other thing where you have to be aware of what you need and it's okay. And I think what I've struggled with is that I feel like the culture has collectively said to me, it's not okay. And you're not okay. Speaking of which, let's talk about body image. Because I remember when I actually, my sister had a wedding. And I was wearing this ear on booba and I guess it didn't look good on me because I was looking like a stick. And then a few years later, I had a baby and her in-laws saw me and they were like, ah, you had it though, you had it. <laughs> and they, they, they had, you know, they were proud, they were happy. And I didn't realize that I had gained that much weight, but they had complimented me. My dad even said something about how I look good. And now I've lost all this weight 
And now I'm getting texts from my cousins talking about, are you okay? You're looking sick. So what I was wondering was about, I guess, the psychological distress or dis-ease of having to deal with our culture's responses to our, our body. When like in America, I look good. Like according to yeah. American ideals, I technically fit the thin ideal because I've lost so much weight. But my family back home is like, you need to add some, some fat on your bones. Yeah, I mean... I definitely have experienced that quite often because not only are Nigerians that I've encountered overly concerned with body image, but they're also very vocal about your own. <laughs> so not just theirs, but everyone else's. So I've kind of learned the respectful clapbacks to give, but when I get home, it's still, it still sits with me and I still stay up at night. So I have to just learn to be kind to myself to make sure that my inner voice is my own voice that's going to be kind to me and not the voices of everyone else saying whatever their opinion is which is really tough it's something I still struggle with yeah for me I've, I've lost a significant amount of weight over the past couple of years and I think I've varied responses so there was a time in my journey where I was I was heavier and I was met with a lot of especially when I was younger, like, oh, you got to be careful, you, you know, but it was never really about health. It was always about being eligible for marriage. Right. <laughs> you want to take care of yourself for that. And then now that I've kind of gotten into a, a healthier space, I either receive the, ah, don't get too small or the, okay, so what's happening next? <laughs> Constant questions about marital status. And I think that culturally that goes back into just how women are, are viewed in our culture. We are ourselves, but we are also extension. So we are, we are wife, we are mother, we are sister. And right. how we take care of ourselves is a direct reflection of the impacts of the roles that we'll have within a family and within a family system. Yeah. Um, and so once I've learned to hear it that way, it's less offensive when somebody it's offensive when somebody tells you, you, I did, but I understand like what you're asking and where it's mm -hmm. coming from. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think we've been able to identify just a few tensions that exist between our host culture or for some of it, for us home and our ancestral home culture. Like when it comes to privacy, when it comes to resilience and self-disclosure and even you know body image and I, there's obviously good things that that come from the culture what are they <laughs> uh, and, and this is let me also couches within like you know so there's this book that i'm self-publishing it's not written all by me it's a collection of letters from a lot of immigrants to their kids and as i think about what i want to teach my daughter about the culture, there are things I'm like, I want you to keep this, but I don't know if I want you to keep that. And so what I'm asking, what are the things that we can say Nigerian culture adds to mental health, our understanding of mental health, that maybe the West or contemporary you know, literature doesn't give enough attention to? And, and I do think there are things we have sort of talked about them, but I just kind of want to list them and kind of focus on them right now in this moment. I have to talk about the two that come to mind immediately. I think there's a lot of power in understanding your impact on others. Mm -hmm. And so although enmeshment is like one side of the pendulum swing where we kind of move as a collective, but the other side of that is that you 
our culture encourages us to remember that we're connected to a people, a history, a story larger than just ourselves. And so even with all my pursuits professionally, otherwise, I always think about the sacrifices made before me. And I don't think that this, and I'm saying this, and I need to preface it by saying, I don't think that this does not exist at all, or this solely exists in Nigerian culture. Mm-hmm. But the way it shows up in, in, in our culture is it shows up in like nuanced ways that I think sometimes we take for granted. But mm-hmm. I remember prayers prayed over me from the time I was yeah. three, four. I know exactly what yeah. it looks like when I tell my mom something that I've done and the pride that swells within her as though she did the thing mm-hmm. um, and how that has been passed down to me as to how I celebrate folks, friends, and otherwise around me. If you do a thing, then we did a thing. I'm mm-hmm. crying like I did it too, because technically I did. I mean, you're my friend. Mm-hmm. So hello, mm-hmm. if you're successful, so am I. And I think that that's a really beautiful part of our culture. I also don't want to take away from the fact that we teach our children very early spiritual awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, we teach them very early, no matter what your what your faith walk is, it's introduced to you that you are more than just a physical being on this yeah. realm yeah. and that what you do has implications long after you're gone. So we mm-hmm. teach our folks early um, culture and legacy, culture being the story that is told to you about you, about where you're from and legacy being what you hope to leave behind the stories that are going to be told after you. And I think mm-hmm. that that's really powerful and really important and things that I hope to be able to pass on to. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's beautiful. And well said for me, I think that we've already spoken on what I think is a big plus to anyone's mental health journey that they can get from the Nigerian culture as I've experienced it. And it really is that resilience, you know, really being able to come back from absolutely anything. And it's something that you're not necessarily taught in words, but you just see people around you coming back from anything and you're inspired and you know that, okay, if this didn't kill them, Mm. then it won't kill me. And then Mm. when you go through the first thing, you're like, okay, if this didn't kill them, Mm. then it won't kill me. And then the next thing you say, if that didn't kill me, then this won't kill me. And you keep getting up and you keep moving forward Mm. and you keep growing and you keep becoming better. And eventually, well, in my own journey, I look back and I see a version of myself that I never thought was possible because I was able to keep getting up and because I had examples of that, examples Mm -hmm. of people who can move here and leave their whole life behind and start afresh and still make a beautiful life out of the scraps that they took from home. Yeah, and I would say not just coming back, but coming back with joy. Coming back with joy. Some people come back, they come back bitter, or they come back like nothing good can happen for me or whatever. But I think one of the reasons, I've been to a lot of American churches. Right now I go to an American church, but I got to tell you, I I miss that night. I praise. I don't really need an hour and a half ministration and an hour and a half sermon. But that praise, and there's something about, for me, when I see Nigerian people, like bend down and sing from their heart, no matter what is going on in their life. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel like, should I sit down here and die? I mm-hmm. can praise, I can sing with a joyful yeah. heart. Yeah. And that's that strength that I, I, I love about this culture. And, and I may not be saying it right, but um, I also appreciate, I don't know if it's called Oriki, like there's a belief mm-hmm. at least among Yoruba people about the power of your words. 
And especially when it comes to your children, there's this constant commitment to like speaking blessings. Yeah, no, whether on your birthday or anytime you see somebody, you know, you just prophesy over them and speak life over them and remind them of who they are. And I think, I mean, the literature does support this because it's yeah. basically it's, it's affirmation and it's allowing you to engage with something different. It's challenging your thoughts about yourself mm-hmm. and it's reminding you of who you are. Mm-hmm. So I think those are things that's something I can appreciate from the Nigerian culture. Beautiful. As well. So even though it's a little difficult just trying to manage these tensions, I think we're doing it. I think we're figuring it out. And from what I got from this conversation, one of the things we just really have to be, I guess we have to just work on being self-aware and being able to negotiate. It's okay to negotiate those things. It's not always black and white. There's a time when we got to play the night job card, there's a time when we, you know, we do what's what works for us as individuals. There's a time to operate as collective. There's a time to say, nope, that's not where I am. And we just have to figure out what that is for us and be secure in that. So I am thankful for this conversation. You guys have given me a lot to think about. In fact, I don't know, I might have to do a part two at some point, but I know you guys are busy. So thank you so much for all of your insights on this show. Thank you, Dr. Tyler. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, share with others and leave a rating and review. You can also follow the Unapologetically Us blog. That's un-apologetically-us.com. Dr. Tyler.